Our next speaker was uh, at one time an extreme sports enthusiast and a punk rocker. I don't know what a punk rocker is. I, I haven't been able to ask him. At 23 years of age, he had a dramatic paradigm shift after reading a Christian commentary tracing the hand of God through history from creation to the end of the world. The book, written over 100 years ago, yet still a bestseller today, is called The Great Controversy. His newfound Christian faith became the catalyst for a changed life and unearthed an extraordinary ability to communicate in compelling ways some of the most mysterious and challenging teachings of the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Asherick. All right, thank you. All right, good afternoon, Prophetica. It's a little quiet in here. That makes me nervous. People ask me if I ever get nervous, and the answer is no, unless you get really quiet. That's what makes me nervous. Uh, he says he's never seen what a punk rocker looks like or what one is. Well, you're looking at one right now, right? I always, I always get a little nervous when they say he used to be a punk rocker because I still feel like in many ways I am. We'll talk, tell you that story tomorrow. Well, I've been asked to speak on the Christmas prophecies, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word Christmas, but I would imagine it's probably snow ride, you know, sled rides in the snow and uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, snowmen with coal eyes and, and carrots for nose. Am I, am I anywhere near? Well, my family and I have lived here down under might since 2014, and we're just trying to get our minds around this idea that summer and Christmas are the same thing. And so I'm going to talk to you today about the Christmas prophecies. Whatever comes to your mind in terms of weather, for many people today, Christmas has the idea of rampant consumerism and materialism run amok, right? We think about trees and we think about shopping. And in America, at least, we think about the phenomenon known as Black Friday. And this has caused some that are more Christian and religious in their orientation to sort of push back against the rampant consumerism and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not all about the gifts and all of the goodies. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. I always liked that. It sounds really cool. I remember the first time I saw that slogan, my mom was wearing a pin that said, Jesus is the reason for the season. And today I want to talk to you about some amazing Christmas prophecies. The first thing I want to say right up front, the name of the event here is Prophetica. The root word here is this idea of prophecy. And you might be inclined incorrectly, mistakenly, to think of a prophecy as a kind of prediction. It is not. A prediction has built into it a measure of doubt or of uncertainty. When we talk about prophecy, and especially biblical prophecies, what we're saying is not a prediction, something that you might be able to say, well, the odds are pretty good there. What we're talking about is, from God's perspective, a foretelling of future events. So there's no uncertainty here. There's no perhaps. A prophecy, biblically speaking, is a foretelling of future events. And there are many of such events that we find in the Bible, so-called Bible prophecies. Uh, Israel's failures, much of the story of the Bible is the story of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and their failures, and the judgment that was upon them in captivity. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, or Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7 to 9 is also a fascinating passage. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow in one of my presentations. Maybe others will take it up as well. And then there are dozens of what are called messianic prophecies. 
And that's what I want to talk to you about now, in addition to some of the great symbolic prophecies found in the book of Revelation. But I want to talk to you about number three up on the screen. And that's what we mean by Christmas prophecies, Messianic prophecies. Messianic comes from the root word of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. Prophecies that anticipated, prophecies that looked forward to the coming of what all Jewish people hoped for, and that was a Messiah, a deliverer, someone that would be anointed. And the Bible is filled with many of these prophecies, depending on how you count and exactly where you draw the line. There could be as few as maybe 50 or 60 and more than 100, right? But there are dozens of these Messianic prophecies, prophecies not that predict the coming of a Messiah, but that foretell the future in advance of a coming of Messiah. They include things like where Messiah would be born, his birthplace. And what I've got up here on the screen for you is the prophecy or the, the foretelling of the event in the Old Testament, and then the fulfillment of that event in the New Testament. And so, for example, in the book of Micah, it anticipates, it foretells that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then in Matthew chapter 2, it says that he was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. That his mother would be a virgin is anticipated in Isaiah 7, a miraculous birth, and then the fulfillment of that in Matthew. And so right through his tribe, that he would be from the tribe of Judah, that his family, he would be a descendant of Jesse and thus a descendant of David, the time around which he would come, the specific message that Messiah would give, his entry into Jerusalem, the fact that he would be betrayed, and not just betrayed in any general way, but that there would be a betrayal price, that he would be spat upon and mocked. And in each of these columns, you see the prophetic anticipation and then the New Testament fulfillment. Just a few more here. You have that he would be, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? He'd be crucified, but his bones would not be broken. He would be crucified with criminals or executed with criminals. Uh, that he would be mocked and scorned, that there would be a resurrection. And finally, the timing of the event. And so these are just... 15 of these messianic prophecies, these anticipations of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Now, in 1958, a fellow by the name of Peter Stoner, who was a scientist and a professor of science at a number of universities, wrote a book, kind of an interesting book, and the book was titled Science Speaks, and it's a little bit difficult to read, but the subtitle is Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy and the Bible. And in the book, what Dr. Stoner did was remarkable. He said, what would be the chances, randomly, of somebody just by happenstance fulfilling these various messianic prophecies? I mean, we can call them prophecies, but what if somebody just stumbled into various fulfillments of these prophecies? And Stoner says, what would be the chances of that? And so what he does is he goes through in the book and he sort of describes his methodology, and then he lays out his summary. And what he says is, is uh, if, he, if you calculated just eight of those, we mentioned 15 a moment ago, I said there was dozens and as many as 100. Dr. Stoner calculated just eight of the Bible's Messianic prophecies and concluded that the odds of one person fulfilling all of those eight prophecies would be 10 to the 17th power. Now that's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. It is a fantastically large number. But things get really interesting when you increase the number of prophecies. He went on and said if you increase the number of prophecies to 48, the chances of one person fulfilling those randomly, by chance, happenstance, serendipitously would be 10 with 157 zeros behind it. Now, just to give you a feel for the size of that number, the shape of that number, astrophysicists and cosmologists estimate that the total number of electrons in the universe is about 10 to the 81st power. 
Okay, so this number is beyond astronomical. It's effectively saying it's impossible. Absolutely, totally impossible. And, and the basic thesis that Stoner was making is that there had to have been some foreknowledge, some anticipation. This wasn't just randomly falling into these fulfillments, but in fact, they were anticipated, they were announced, and then they were fulfilled. And that's a key word. When we come to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, we find that Matthew's favorite word is fulfill or fulfill. And what Matthew does is very important. It's very important from a theological perspective and, and also just from a larger perspective of how prophecy works and, and sort of just how history works. What Matthew does is he goes through the Hebrew Old Testament, beginning in Genesis and extending through the book of Malachi, and he finds many places in Israel's history and he finds corollaries to those things in the life of Jesus. And so what he says again and again and again, oh, this event that happened in Israel's history fulfilled in Jesus. This event fulfilled, this event fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. And these are just some of the chapters and verses in which Matthew is saying that was fulfilled in Jesus, that was fulfilled in Jesus, that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now this is a radical interpretive technique. Because what Matthew is doing as a Jew and as a devout Jew, he's looking back over the sweep of Israel's history and he's saying that, that these events in Israel's history anticipated not only Israel's actual history, but they actually anticipated Messiah's own history. That's why they're called Messianic prophecies or anticipations of a coming Messiah. Remember, Messiah means anointed or a deliverer. Here's another group of them. All the way through the book of Matthew, as I've mentioned here, this becomes his favorite word. He just can't stop looking at the Old Testament. What he's effectively done is he's gotten a pair of glasses, right? And, and these glasses are what theologians would call Christocentricity. That's a long, multisyllabic word that just means Christ-centered. And what Matthew's doing is, formerly, prior to the coming of Messiah and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, as he's looking back on the events of Jesus' life, and he's just sort of associating himself with those events, as he's looking back, he's put on his glasses, and he said, wait a minute, when I put on the glasses of this microphone is driving me insane. There we go. When I put on the glasses, some people would say I'm already insane, but it's driving me more insane. <laughs> Matthew says, when I put on these glasses of, of looking at Israel's history through the lens of Jesus, I begin to see fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. Now, let me just give you a few instances of this. Probably one of the best known is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus says this, do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the Law and the Prophets, that's, that's basically the two divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Law was what's called the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible or the writings of Moses. The Prophets are the rest of the Old Testament. And so what Jesus says here is remarkable. This is taking place in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I am come to destroy the Law or the Prophets, but to, and not to abolish them, but to, what's the word there? But to fulfill them. Right? This is an instance of the fact that this becomes Matthew's favorite word. Earlier in Matthew's own book, Matthew does something that is frankly radical and hugely helpful for us. And it's something I want to share with you here. What he does is he takes Israel's history and he compartmentalizes it. He wraps it up in a really organized and, and symmetrical way. He says this, there were 14 generations from Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, to David, the second king of Israel and the most loved king. Then from David to the exile in Babylon, there were 14 generations, and 14 generations from the exile in Babylon to the coming of Messiah. Now, any Jew that's reading that would immediately see the point that Matthew is making. 
he says there was 14, 14, 14. There were 14 from Abraham to David, from David to the captivity in Babylon, and from the captivity in Babylon to the Messiah. Any Jew would say, wait a minute, three 14s, that's a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven, and a seven. You have to understand that in the Jewish economy, everything revolved around, and Lyle alluded to this earlier, what are called sabbatical cycles. You had not only a weekly Sabbath where you would go through one, two, three, four, five, six days and then rest on the Sabbath. And again, six days resting on the Sabbath. You also had yearly sabbatical cycles, right? So you would go through six years. Then on the seventh year, the land would rest. But then they had cycles of those sevens. You would take not just seven years, but seven groups of seven. And on the year after that, so you have seven groups of seven, which is 49. And on the 50th year, this was what was called a jubilee. And a jubilee was this really profoundly uh, equalizing economic institution and spiritual institution in Israel's basic economy and in, in the, the way that Israel worked. And we'll talk more about the jubilee in just a second. So what we have here, if there's a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven, and then comes Messiah, what Matthew is saying here is that in some significant sense, Messiah will be like a kind of Sabbath that he will give rest in some sense. Jesus' ministry was a kind of Sabbath and it anticipated the Jubilee. So unsurprisingly, we find Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew saying things like this, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will Sabbath you. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So here we have this sabbatical anticipation. There's a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven, and here comes Messiah as the seventh seven, anticipating what comes after the seventh seven, which is Jubilee, which I want to talk a little bit about right now. When we talk about the Christmas prophecies, we think about Christmas as a time of of not only, as we've mentioned, materialism and consumerism, but when we think about Christmas from a biblical perspective, from a religious perspective, from a Christian perspective, it revolves around the birth and the life of Jesus. I want to talk to you now about the institution of Jubilee. On that 50th year, after seven cycles of seven, something very significant happened. The land was returned to its ancestral owners. In the Jewish economy, there were 12 tribes and the land was returned to the ancestral owners. Land was leased, not purchased. Number three, all debts were canceled, right? If there was an indebtedness, it was canceled at the Jubilee and servants and slaves were released. All of this took place in the Jubilee. Now, this Jubilee rears its head in a really kind of funny, subtle and nuanced way, actually again in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is approached by one of his best-known disciples, in this case, Peter. And it says, then Peter came to him, this is in Matthew chapter 18, and said, Lord, how often would I forgive my, how often shall my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? And then he says, up to seven times, feeling very magnanimous, feeling very kind and merciful, should I forgive my brother who sins against me seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, forgive him seven times, but forgive him seven times seventy now, this is a remarkable thing that's happening here because if a seven is a Sabbath cycle and if seven sevens is a larger Jubilee cycle, then what would 70 sevens be? It would be like a Jubilee on steroids, 
right? Something is going to happen at the end of the 77s that will announce not just the land returning to its ancestral owners in a temporal sense, not just the canceling of debts in an economic sense, not just the slaves being set free in, a, again, an economic sense. Something else would happen at the end of the 77s. Jesus here anticipates it and he speaks it to Peter. So Jesus here is referring to an ancient prophecy in the book of Daniel about the Messiah. When Rome was just out here a few moments ago, he was speaking about this exact prophecy that I'm talking about. You might remember when he said to his wife, have you read this? Have you read this? I don't do a very good rule. Hey, have you read this? This is amazing. Okay? That's my best Rome. I just need a deeper voice and bigger biceps. So Jesus here is referring to a prophecy that looks like this, okay? Now, this is just the brief overview of the prophecy, but what you have is a remarkable prophecy found in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. It begins in 457 BC with a decree from a king, a Persian king, and it moves all the way forward through 69 weeks, and that 69 weeks brings us to AD 27, the very year that Jesus became Messiah, the year he was baptized. Halfway through that year, halfway through the, that week, that, that final 70th seven, or that, that 490th seven, halfway through it, Jesus dies on the cross. And then, and then another three and a half years after that, this really remarkable thing happens and I'll have time to get into right now. The point is this, this prophecy anticipates with like laser-like accuracy that Jesus would come right on time, which is why when we go to the gospels, we find Jesus saying things like this. Now, after John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is, what's the word, everyone? Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Another New Testament writer, the apostle Paul, picked up on this very notion. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves. Again, not merely in an economic sense. This isn't just seven sevens. This was 77s, that Jesus, the Messiah, would come at the culmination of Israel's history, and not just temporal debts, but true debts, debts to God, not just the land in a general sense, but the land, the earth, would be restored to its natural and ancestral state, that it would be given back to the children of men. And so one of Jesus' favorite things that he would say in the Gospel of John is, if the Son sets you free you will be free. What's the next word? Indeed. Free indeed. Jesus not only died, he rose from the dead. And really, everything boils down to that. I mean, that's the bottom line. If Jesus rose from the grave, then he is who he claimed to be. If he did not rise from the grave, then he is not who he claimed to be and who Christians say that he is. Luke chapter 24 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said this to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. In addition to the sabbatical cycles, there's another fascinating little Christmas prophecy I'll throw out at you real quick. Israel's calendar, their festal calendar, was made up of six feasts, three in the spring and three in the fall. And each of these festal, uh, each of these events, these festival events actually anticipates some significant event in the life of Messiah. Jesus was Passover when he died. He rose from the dead and became the first fruits. Then at the end of the Feast of Weeks was what was called the day of Pentecost. 
This brought about the fall feast or the autumnal feasts, which begins with the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and culminating in the Feast of Booths. In a very significant sense, the, the spring feasts are really easy to get your mind around, but in a very significant sense, all of these feasts are fulfilled in a profound and powerful way in the very life of Jesus. So we could say it like this, Israel's festal calendar and their astonishing history prophetically anticipated the Messiah, Jesus. It's not just a guess, Stoner said. It's not just a chance. Maybe somebody randomly happened into these prophecies, fell into these prophecies. Stoner said the chances are astronomically infinitesimally small. No way it could have happened. And so Israel's, not only their calendar, but their astonishing history, these sabbatical cycles and these messianic prophecies anticipated prophetically the Messiah Jesus. Contained right in that slide is what we're talking about here, prophetica. And I invite you to see the Christmas prophecies through new eyes, through the very same eyes that Matthew saw them through, so that you can say, with me and with Matthew, it was fulfilled in Jesus. Thank you, David. Thank Just you. have a few uh, questions here for you, hot off the press. Right. First of all, uh, do Jewish scholars recognize these Old Testament messianic prophecies as messianic and yet to be filled since they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah? Well, the question is actually fundamentally mistaken because it's, it's saying that, and I'm not... I'm not making uh, you know, a big case here. I'm just saying Jewish scholars, there are many Messianic Jewish scholars. I have friends that are Jews and believers in Jesus. So it's a bit of a, it's not exactly accurate to say the Jews deny it. There are right. many Jews that believe that mm -hmm. Jesus is the Messiah. Um, it's kind of a funny question because it's like saying, do people that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah think that these prophecies point to Jesus as the Messiah? Well, the answer to that would be no. But do the people, the Jewish people who have looked at these prophecies, especially these sabbatical cycles, culminating in Daniel chapter 9, there are many Jews. In fact, I have a friend, Dr. Alan Reinick, uh, who is a Jew, and he came to faith through study of Daniel chapter 9. So yes, there are, and it's, it's right now, I mean, there's going to be people who are non-Jewish who will find it persuasive, and there's going to be people who are non-Jewish who find it unpersuasive. There'll be people who are Jewish who don't find it persuasive, and those that do. So, Thank great you. question. Is there something uh, that you would like people hearing what you've shared about today to do about it? Is there an application that you want to just drive home oh, again? Oh, man, I think you should accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and live the life that God has intended for you. Yeah, absolutely. If you need more information on that, just come talk to me. I'll tell you how to do it. But I guess the, the short version would be a really great place to start would be to pick up the Bible, pick up the book of Matthew. And this is a, a, a little experiment that I like to do. It's a challenge I've given to people all over the world. Pick up the Bible, start with the book of Matthew. And just read a chapter a day and just bask in the description of this guy, Jesus. Just, just let it soak into your soul and ask yourself this question. Has there ever been a person like this? And uh, the answer for many of us, many, many of us, many millions of us is no. In fact, I go so far as to say that the, the remarkable account of Jesus in the Gospels, and just start with the Gospel of Matthew, there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the story is so profound, so uninventable, that it could not have been made up. It's a story that no one would have written. In this really great book called Church History in Plain Language, the author Bruce Shelley opens this really remarkable book with this line. He says, Christianity is the only major world religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Well, that raises a question. 
Why is the central event of the Christian faith the humiliation of the Christian God? And the answer to that question is found in the fact that God, from a Christian perspective, reigns not in power. He reigns in love and in service and in humility. And all of that is embodied in this guy named Jesus who is uninventable. So my invitation to you is to read the Gospel of Matthew. Ask yourself, what about this guy? What do I think about him? And if you come to the same conclusion that I and many millions of others have, then just ask him into your heart and ask him to be not just an historical figure, but to be your personal savior. Would you thank David Ashwick? He will be back. Thank you.